All right, good evening, everybody. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at the Chapel Sydney. If we haven't met, happy Easter. Welcome to all our guests online as well, the two million people watching. Hello. We love you. And thank you for joining us today. There's a story of a woman who looked out her window and saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of the neighbor's rabbit. Now, this neighbor, this, this lady didn't get along with her neighbor, and so she knew this was going to be a complete disaster. She grabbed the broom, pummeled the dog until the dog dropped the dead rabbit from its mouth. Seeing the dead rabbit, she panicked. She grabbed the rabbit, took it inside, gave it a bath, blow-dried it to its original fluffiness, combed it until the rabbit looked like a rabbit again, snuck into the neighbor's yard and propped it back up in its cage. An hour later, she heard screams from the next door. And she asked the neighbor what was going on. And her neighbor replied, our rabbit, our rabbit, he died two weeks ago. We buried him and now he's back. (laughs) So near the end of the 18th century, the Western world first encountered the duck-billed platypus. I think we've got a photo of a duck-billed platypus there. So... That's a platypus, and that's indigenous to us here in Australia. It has fur all over its body, it's the size of a rabbit, and has webbed feet. But since it lays eggs, it reproduces like a reptile. Now, when the skin of a platypus was first brought over to Europe, people were amazed. Was it a mammal or was it a reptile? The platypus seemed so bizarre that despite the physical evidence of the skin, and the testimony of the witnesses, many people actually dismissed it as a sham. It wasn't until a pregnant platypus was shot and taken over to London for observers to see with their own eyes that they began to believe. Until this happened, the greatest thinkers of the world refused to accept the existence of the platypus. Pretty pretty crazy, right? Now, the initial problem wasn't that, the initial problem was that it didn't fit some people's view of how the world operated. So they rejected it and then reached a verdict, even though the weight of evidence said otherwise. Similarly, there are two groups of people here, people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus and people who don't. If you're in this place and you call yourself a Christian, then I want to encourage you with the truths of the resurrection. If you're here and you don't believe in the resurrection or you have questions on the historical validity of it, then I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be curious. Curious about why no other event in all of recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, and geographic borders. Be curious why after this event, the message message of Jesus exploded. It exploded across the world without any political or military power. Now, wherever you sit on that scale, my prayer is that God will just draw you closer to himself tonight. So let's read our passage for tonight. Mark 16, 1 to 8. It should be on the uh, big, big screen there. Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Solomon bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. 
Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Amen. So that's how the book of Mark ends. It's a bit of a weird way to end a book, especially because the other Gospels don't end like that. It doesn't end with great courage or hope, but it ends with bewilderment and trembling. And if someone was trying to make up a story, they wouldn't exactly end it like that. In fact, some people tried to add alternate endings to the book of Mark after he, he wrote it. And you can see these in some modern translations that we have today. Out of all the religions and faiths in the world, Christianity is the only faith that traces its origin back to one particular event on one particular day in history. One day there was no such thing as a church. Then suddenly overnight there was. There was, a, there was suddenly a group of people who believed in the resurrection of Jesus and even suffered the most extraordinary things for his sake. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith has no hope to rest upon. It is at the core of our faith. While many people reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it's not the type of claim that can be true for you and not for me. The tomb was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There is no middle ground in this. If Jesus is not the Son of God sent to redeem the world, the one who rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, if Jesus is not all that, then he is what some people call a complete nut job. C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He was either crazy or the Christ. And so today I want to help you understand that the resurrection isn't just good news, but it's also true news. There are four specific historical facts that help us see this. Mark says that the empty tomb was first discovered by Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Now notice what all these people have in common. They're all women. Today, you know, we might not notice something like that, but in ancient Israel, women were so low in status that they were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, they weren't even allowed to give testimony in court. If you committed a terrible crime and the only witnesses around were women, you would probably go free. Now, how amazing is it then that Mark points out that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women. All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all note that it was women who first saw the empty tomb. If you're going to make up a story of, of the story of the resurrection of Jesus, there was no advantage to having women serve as the first eyewitnesses. It would have seriously undermined the credibility of the claim. 
The only plausible explanation for why all the four Gospels say the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women is that it was the women who found the empty tomb. Crazy, right? Now, another reason we know that the resurrection really happened was that the tomb was found empty. Many people argue that that if Jesus' body wasn't in the tomb, then his followers must have moved it, making the resurrection into a hoax. But, But that argument doesn't really work. The disciples had been cowards. Were they now suddenly bold because of a lie they themselves made up? just doesn't, doesn't add up. Jewish history shows us that depending on the type of stone used, it could have weighed between one to two tons. The stone was set inside a groove in front of the entrance and skewered from falling over by a stone wall that stood in front of the tomb opening. I think we've got a photo of it. The stone was sealed with a Roman seal. This was a sign of authentication, that the tomb was occupied and the power and authority of Rome stood behind the seal. Anyone found breaking that seal, guilty of the death penalty straight away. The tomb also had a Roman guard stationed. The Roman guard was anywhere up to a 16-man unit, not just one person. If a guard member fell asleep, he would be beaten and then executed. But not just that one person, but the entire 16-man unit. The tomb was secure. Even if the disciples were somehow able to overpower the guards and break the seal, that leaves us with another question. Why would so many people die for a lie? Would people leave their businesses, careers, homes, and families to go to the ends of the earth, die horrible, gruesome deaths, to protect a lie. Not one of them, while being beheaded, fed to lions, crucified upside down, burned alive, not one of them changed their story. They had opportunities to recant, but they didn't. They continued spreading the gospel, even though it cost them their lives. N.T. Wright says, there were many messianic movements in the first century. In every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome as Jesus did. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. If you were following a would-be Messiah and he was crucified by Rome, you had two choices, disband the movement or find another would-be Messiah. But we hear that the followers of Jesus went to their death claiming that Jesus had been resurrected. Now, Jesus' disciples had believed and claimed that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. The argument that arises from that is that the disciples are delusional. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to others as proof of the resurrection. Many who argue against the historical events of the resurrection suggest that the early Christians hallucinated the appearance of Jesus. But Paul claims that a crowd of more than 500 people saw him at once. Justin Brealey says, hallucinations do sometimes occur when people lose loved ones. The people most likely to experience a grief hallucination are senior adults grieving the loss of a spouse. Approximately 50% do. 
often believing they hear or sense the person with them. However, only 7% of all senior adults grieving the loss of a loved one experience a visual hallucination of that person. It's also worth noting that people don't experience the same hallucinations. Most psychologists agree that mass hallucinations don't occur. If the Romans could have produced the body, they would have. It was the combination of eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus to his disciples that are overwhelming evidence that this is a true event. It wasn't long before those who followed Jesus came to understand that what happened didn't just affect Jesus. You know, the best analogy that I could think of for what the first century followers would have felt is the movie The Sixth Sense. Many of you probably have seen it. The pivotal moment in the movie comes when the little kid tells uh, Bruce Willis, I see dead people. And these dead people the little kid sees don't know they're dead. And the twist comes at the end. Now, if you're wanting to watch this movie and you haven't seen it yet, I am so sorry you came today on this Sunday. (laughs) So here's how it ends. Bruce Willis realizes at the end of the movie that he's one of these dead people. The whole time he didn't know. The followers of Jesus began to piece together that new life had begun at the resurrection of Christ. They began to see the twist. They were transformed not through inspiration, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matt Chandler says the Bible cannot mean to us what it did not mean for the church back then. The same realities and the same truths of the resurrection that the first century followers discovered hold true for us today. If all these historical facts about the resurrection are true, then what does the resurrection mean for us? It means that Jesus is who he claimed to be. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to, the, to get to God the Father except by means of me. Jesus said, I'm the way. He didn't say, I'm a way, or I'm a good way, or I'm one of the ways. Jesus is the exclusive source of salvation. All roads do not lead to heaven. Pastor Rick Warren uses this analogy, saying all roads lead to heaven is like saying, I can dial any phone number and get home. There's only one number you can dial to get home. Yeah. Jesus said, I am the truth. That means any other way is not the truth. Jesus said, I am the life. He is the source of all life. They asked some children to write some sentences about what they believed about death. Gilda, aged eight, said, when you die, they put you in a box and bury you in the ground because you don't look so good. Stephanie, age nine, said, doctors help you and doctors help you so you won't die until you pay their bill. Marsha, aged nine, said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there too. Raymond, age 10, said, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. The fact is Jesus is the source of life. Our lives on earth, this is just preschool for what's going to happen in eternity. In the book of John, Jesus makes these seven I am statements, proclaiming who he is. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. This is significant because in the Old Testament, 
God revealed his name to Moses as I am. And I am is actually understood as, as a name for God in Judaism. So whenever Jesus made these I am statements, he's identifying himself as God. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In this chapter, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people who have come to listen to him. But they've come for the wrong reason. Jesus says to them, whatever you're looking to for life, your job, your money, power, fame, status, family, relationships, that's what you're feasting on. That's your meat. That's your drink. That's your bread. That's what you're looking to for substance. If you find your life in things that perish, you will never be filled. Jesus says, I have not come to bring bread. I have come to be the bread. I have not come to improve your life. I have come to be your life. To have me and nothing else is to have everything. The thing that you're currently looking to for life, the bread that you want, won't actually fill you. Turn from that and trust in me. As soon as Jesus says that, the crowds walk away. They say, this teaching is too hard. Who can accept it? Some of those walking away had been with Jesus, had been doing life with Jesus for over two years. They saw him do miracles, yet they missed him. They missed life. I wonder how many of us are in this place, just like the crowd. I wonder how many of us look at the bread in our hand and we look at Jesus and we close our hand and turn around and say, I have all that I need right here. I have all that I need in my job. I have all that I need in my addiction, in this relationship. If you're telling me, Jesus, to get to you, I have to give this up, then I might walk away because that's not the life that I'm interested in. If that's you in this place, then please hear this. The resurrection means that Jesus is the only bread that will break for you. Of all the breads that are out there, Jesus is the only one who breaks for you. Every other bread will break you. It will perish. It will leave you wanting. It will leave you broken. Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life. I am what you're looking for. I am all you need. I am enough for you. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus did what he promised to do. In Mark 16, 6, the angel said, Don't be frightened. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified, but he isn't here. He came back to life again just as he said he would. The cross was no surprise. It was all part of God's plan. He did what he promised. When God makes a promise, you can count on it. Psalm 145.13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving to all he has made. When we celebrate Easter, we're actually celebrating God's faithfulness. We're celebrating the fact that this promise-keeping God is all that he says he is. And today the resurrection matters it matters because we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And he does what he promises to do. June 23rd of last year was profoundly memorable for me. My grandma, who was 98, she passed away to be with the Lord. 
You know, in the months following her death, I remembered some vivid memories of her, especially when uh, my brother and I were young. My parents were first-generation Korean immigrants, so like 99% of other Korean immigrants, they had to find work. So they worked early, early mornings and late nights. My grandma not only took care of my brother and I, but, but other Korean children too who were in the same situation. Yeah, that's my grandma. So my grandma would take care of all the neighborhood kids. And I remember hearing the stories of how when we were little, uh, my brother would throw things down the toilet. Not me, but my brother. <laughs> like my dad's keys, wallets, um, toys, and rice as well. And my grandma would always fish them out, clean them out, and then put them back, um, including the rice. And yes, we did eat the rice, which was delicious at that time. June 23rd and the following months that followed, you know, it was one of profound loss. And I still miss my grandma today. But it's also one of deep gratitude. I am so thankful for the sacrifices that my grandma made. And I believe that my grandma went to meet Jesus face to face. Jesus is the first and foremost person we'll meet in heaven. But before you can meet him there face to face, you must meet him by faith here. Soon after the resurrection, Jesus' followers realized that when Jesus died on the cross, it was more than just his death. They realized that it was their death too. They realized that on the third day, the greatest step in human history had been taken. The stone was rolled away, and Jesus stood at the threshold of that tomb. And that first step that he took changed the entire world. Today, there is one more step that each single one of us need to take. I want to finish with this story of John Ortberg's friend. This friend, she spent a great deal of her life living far from God. Over time, she realized the limitations of her own self-sufficiency and pride. Feeling like she needed more information about God before she would commit to him, she spent about a year studying God and asking questions. But it wasn't long until she realized that the issue wasn't a lack of information. She had commitment issues. She had never actually surrendered her life to God because she knew that if Jesus had been raised from the dead, that fact changes everything. So she decided she wanted to confess her sin and receive forgiveness and start a new life, but she wanted this change to be really clear. So here's what she did. She went home, stood in her kitchen, staring at the threshold between her kitchen and her living room. And she said aloud, God, when I step across that line, I want you to know that I'm leaving behind my old life. I'm leaving behind my old sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to be your child. I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my friend and my leader. And she walked across that line. She said, that is the biggest step I have ever taken in my life because I entered into a relationship with God. Now when I have problems or questions or doubts, I remember that line. I remember that step. I remember he is with me. 
Have you taken that step? The story of the resurrection, it demands a response from us. It can't be true for you and not for me. There is no middle ground in this. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. So take that step today. It'll be the biggest step you ever take in your life. Let's close our eyes in prayer.